Hi, I'm Gabby. This is the My Possible Self podcast. And as always, it is wonderful to have you join me today. I've wanted to tackle the subject of movement and mental health for quite some time now. We all know that moving our bodies is important for our physical health, but in terms of what benefits it brings to our mental health, yes, we are becoming more aware, but really, we're only just scratching the surface. So I wanted to talk to an expert in the field who could help us better understand why and how engaging in exercise can do things like reduce anxiety and depression, improve our mood, boost our self-esteem, minimise stress and enhance cognitive functioning. It was a really good friend of mine who suggested I chat to Andrew Wade, founder and CEO of Case Specific Nutrition, who is also a registered dietitian and works with clients to build a personalised nutrition and fitness plan. Wow, was I blown away by Andrew's in-depth yet easy to understand breakdown of how movement affects the mind and body. And I think you will be too. So let's proceed with the episode. Andrew Wade, I just want to say, first of all, thank you so much for getting up. Well, it's not even, I'm the one getting up early, not you. <laughs> yeah, I've been up for a few hours. This is good. This is, this is my okay. second or third meeting of the day. So we're good. <laughs> wow. Well, okay. Well, let me say this. You are incredibly busy. So thank you so much for um, finding time to record a podcast predominantly about the importance of movement through the lens of mental health. We're also going to weave in some stuff with nutrition because we have to, and obviously this is your wheelhouse. But let's start by introducing you to our listeners, as most of them are from across the pond over in the UK. Um, My Possible Self is a mental health and wellness app. So we are recommended by the NHS, which is the UK's big national health service. The purpose of this podcast is to speak to experts like yourself that can help all listeners on their mental health journey. And I've been wanting to tackle movement for a while because it's one of those things that we know it's good for us, but we don't really know why. So this is where I'm hoping you can help us out. Um, You are a registered dietitian. You are the founder and CEO of Case Specific Nutrition. And uh, this has been a dream of yours since you were like 15 I read on your website. Yeah. So I think can we start off by talking a little bit about what you do on a day-to-day basis and how you've built up this empire. <laughs> You're too kind to call it an empire. I, I, I'll call it my little baby empire. But uh, I guess it goes back to, as you said, when I was 15. So I was in high school. I was the typical, you know, I was an athlete and I was really interested in performance and all those things. And I also was interested in medicine. I thought I wanted to be a doctor. And so mm-hmm. I decided I wanted to go to college to study nutrition. And then I would go to med school and kind of follow that path. And as I worked my way through school, I sort of realized that I didn't really love the biomedical model of care here in the United States, right? That sort of Mm. patient shows up with a problem, they slap a Band-Aid on it and say, you know, see you next time. And I started to study things like the biopsychosocial model of care, which is really where preventive wellness lives. And that's, I mean, it sounds like a lot of what you guys do within uh, within your platform. 
platform. And so I decided to become a dietitian and started to practice privately, where we started to work with a variety of populations, most people trying to work on their uh, health and wellness. And sort of that's evolved now. And fast forward, we have a, a fairly large group of dietitians. We see a few thousand people a month, and uh, we're working on expanding nationally. And uh, mm. you know, right now, we're kind of working on that regional side of things. But we are a group of dietitians. We also have uh, some training facilities and some strength coaches that work with us. We do some things with therapy groups, and we work with all sorts of client types, whether it be people trying to um, you know, reverse chronic disease, whether it be those dealing with disordered eating and behavioral issues, mm. or whether it's those that are just interested in navigating this complex landscape called health. And so <laughs> we've sort of built our brand with that in mind, and we have our dietitian services and group services, and we have our, we actually have a little podcast of our own mm. um, and a YouTube channel that's growing rapidly. And like I said, the gym and a meal prep service, and we just started a nonprofit. So we're trying to do our best to, to put a dent in the universe, just like just like every other good vision out there. See, empire. I wasn't wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and also, I just want to stress as well, because a lot of our um, listeners will be from the UK, like you were ahead of the game in terms of like, you're offering online digitally. I know a lot of people had no choice when the pandemic struck, but even before that, uh, one of your clients was telling me you were offering a lot. So as we continue our conversation, if people did want to work with case-specific nutrition, there are options for them digitally, not yeah. just in person. Absolutely. Yeah, we've had a virtual practice. Um, our electronic medical record actually uses Zoom. It uses a HIPAA compliant Zoom. And so um, it's, you know, patient protected data and all that. But we were using that prior to COVID. And then with the pandemic, we found that we were kind of built to lean into it. And so we mm. sort of expanded our services and were able to sort of uh, advocate with some of the local insurance bodies here in the US to work on expanding telehealth. And I sit mm. on the state board for things related to reimbursement. So we're always trying to make it easier to access us. Mm. And yeah, if you are someone that is across the pond that wants to work with a group of passionate lifestyle uh, related health professionals, we, we are we are definitely one to consider. Yeah, absolutely. So going back to what I was saying earlier about we all know exercise is really important to help us manage our own mental health, not just if you've got a mental health illness, but everybody has mental health and exercise is really beneficial, as you know. It can work wonders for anxiety and depression in particular. But I'm going to put this question to you, Andrew. How does transforming the body impact the mind? Ooh, that's a wonderful <laughs> question. So I love the concept that I'll, I'll start kind of big picture and then we can unpack it as we choose. But I love the phrase, um, exercise is the single most effective way to dose the brain, D-O-S-E, uh, which is actually an acronym for dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, and endorphins. Um, mm. And those are the four neurotransmitters in our brain that are associated with positive feelings, right? We have all sorts of neurotransmitters that are meant to message and connect and communicate and flag and really let us know how we feel. And those four, dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, and endorphins are the ones that are those feel-good chemicals that we like to hear about, right? And there's a lot of things that will help our body spike dopamine or serotonin uh, or endorphins, mm -hmm. but exercise is the only thing that spikes all four simultaneously. Wow. And so when we talk about, yes, there's the 
the sweating and, you know, the energy expense and the, you know, challenging the heart and the lungs to be more um, resilient, which reduces risk of cardiovascular issues. When we talk about that mental health, it really goes back to if you're going to bolster your dopamine and your serotonin and then kind of support that with those oxytocin and those endorphins, that's going to set you up to actually be happier as a baseline. Um, and okay. so from base, you can actually find a higher level of happiness. And then that's something that allows you to navigate stress and difficult circumstances. And you're going to go at things from a better place. So that's kind of the, I think the most impactful way to think about it is you're dosing your brain every time you choose to move. Wow. That's brilliant. Does the type of movement matter in terms of like, if it was something that's say not so high energy, uh, if it's not going to get your heart racing as much, I think of walking or yoga, would that yep. give you the same kind of hit as say doing a, a hit session? No, that's a great question. So it, it really becomes more time sensitive at that point. Right. And so mm. a hit session that might be 10 to 15 minutes long that gets you really out of breath versus of the same amount of time spent walking or doing like a restorative yoga, you're not going to get quite the same dose, mm. but it goes back to technically, if you do a hit session, the amount of time until you're tapped out is very short. Mm -hmm. The amount of time that you could walk is much mm -hmm. longer. And so it's not quite a, um, it's not quite equal minute to minute, but could a one hour walk in the woods produce the same therapeutic benefit as a 15 minute hit session? Absolutely. Yes. And to a certain extent, when we look at those four neurotransmitters, mm -hmm. there's going to be a slight difference in which ones get hit. So like a hit training, a higher intensity, because mm -hmm. of the challenge to the body, you're going to get a bigger endorphin rush mm -hmm. um, and you're going to get a little bit more of a dopamine hit, which are, those are those two invigorating chemicals where when you do a nice long walk in the woods where you're kind of, you know, at one with nature, right. Yeah. You're going to get a little bit of dopamine and a little bit of endorphins, but you're going to get a bigger hit of that oxytocin and the serotonin, which are more of what I like to call those exhale hormones, the things that give you sort of that. Yeah. <sighs> and so it's kind of a nice balance. And to be fair, that kind of is a reason to incorporate both. Yeah, well, I was going to ask you, one of my questions is, do you prefer to like mix mix up your workouts or stick to what you, you enjoy? Because I've spoken to like personal trainers before and when I'm talking about like especially motivation for a client, they always say, go with what you enjoy doing because they, I guess they just want to get you moving. But then mm -hmm. from what I'm hearing from you, the best thing to do is mix it up. Yeah. And I, I will say, I think that that's great advice from trainers, right? Is if someone's not moving at all and you're trying to lower that action potential to get something set in motion, mm -hmm. I always say step one is schedule the movement needing, right? So you have to mm -hmm. have a time that you're going to do it, right? So a, a lunchtime walk, whatever it is, schedule the meeting and then focus on the contents of that meeting. And that's no different than you and I scheduling a podcast. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then during that time, deciding what that meeting's about, having that conversation. So step one scheduled a meeting is establish an intent to move your body. And it's a lot easier to do that if it's something you're drawn to, if it's something you already enjoy. It's something that doesn't feel like work. It requires less motivation at that point. Yeah. But what's neat is that initial step is a catalyst 
to growth and progress from there, right? After you start moving, mm-hmm. curiosity to expand your movement becomes ideal. And so I would say that, yes, the top of the mountain is you have a very diverse exercise routine. It might include some short, intense bursts of activity. It might include some long and drawn out, more stamina and endurance things. It'll mm-hmm. include what we like to call that mobility and recovery side, which might be a yoga that's restorative or some stretching or some foam rolling work. Mm-hmm. Um, Ideally, it it taps on all of them, but that's that top of the mountain. And the reality is we're going to set someone up to fail if we expect them to go into a relationship with movement, having all three. Initially, start with the one that you're most comfortable with and then allow it to make some friends along the way. Mm, Um, But as you kind of look at that top of the mountain and work your way towards it, what becomes really neat is, so for example, for me personally, the the benefits that I receive from an intense lifting routine versus a circuit training versus hill sprints versus a long distance run versus a hike in the woods with my dogs mm-hmm. um, versus a stretching and yoga kind of restorative session. Those now are six different outlets that I have that serve as escapes, an opportunity for mental connection and recalibration of self, a chance for mind body connection. And so when we talk about having a list of things, a list of outlets, a list of resources, a list of coping mechanisms. Exercise isn't just one thing. It could actually have six or more subcategories. Wow, I love that. I'm thinking about, I don't know if you would have heard of this presenter. She's a British TV personality called Davina McCall. And she also has gotten into fitness sort of further down the line in her career. And um, I'm thinking about motivation. And she said, look, you know, there's going to be times where you just don't want to work out, but there's never, ever going to be a time where afterwards you don't feel better for like making yourself kind of thing. And I think as well, especially if you are feeling a bit down, the mood is low, like it can just seem so hard to like force yourself to get up and get moving. Any sort of tips for like overriding that and like giving ourselves the motivation that we need? Absolutely. And, I, and I'm, I'm a big fan of big picture stuff. I got a Rottweiler that's about to come in. So don't awesome. mind the door that busts open <laughs> here in a sec. <laughs> um, but, you know, I like to I like to kind of take it once again, big picture so that instead of, you know, giving someone a fish, we can kind of teach them to fish on this podcast. When you're lacking motivation, that typically means you're trying to go zero to 100 and you need to be going Mm -hmm. zero to 60 or even zero to 30. So going back to what I said before about lowering that action potential. Mm. So I'll give you a fun personal example, right? So I woke up very early this morning and really technically the first thing on my list was to exercise. But going from wake up to workout is kind of a losing game because your body doesn't wake up in that alert, acute state where it's ready to hit your muscles unless you're being woken up out of like panic. And that's the very disorienting experience. Mm. And so the idea is there needs to be something in the middle. And where people make the mistake is the thing they put in the middle ends up being much more time consuming or is a bigger priority. So for example, they wake up and they're like, oh, you know what? I'm going to get the kids ready for breakfast Mm. and then I'm going to work out. It's Mm -hmm. like, well, let's be honest. By the time you get the kids ready for breakfast, you make breakfast, you hustle and bustle and deal with their emotional roller coaster. The chances that you're going to be in a place where you're ready to return the focus to yourself very low. And so that's something that actually distracted or deviated you. Mm. What we can do instead is we set something up like we put on a podcast 
that mm-hmm. we listen to for 10 or 15 minutes while we sip our coffee and we go stand outside, whether it's cold or warm, right? And we stand out on our deck or on our patio, or if we live in an apartment, we open our window and we just kind of like greet the morning and we allow ourselves to wake up. And if we give ourselves that little like 10 or 15 minute transition, that can oftentimes get you from that zero to that 30 and your brain knows that you're preparing to work out. And mm. so it's sort of a, what we'll call a pre-workout routine. And now mm. I don't think this is as popular in the UK. Um, and frankly, that's good. Uh, but in the U S there's a massive market for pre-workouts and energy drinks and all of that kind of thing. Yeah. That is, it's kind of funny because at base, it's not that those pre-workouts actually cause this like radical motivation. It's that they become the ritual, right? They're that little step that says my intention is to exercise next instead of, Oh, I'm going to wait until I'm ready to exercise. It's no, my intent is to do so. I don't have to arrive there with massive urgency. I'll take this drink. And by the time I'm done drinking it, it's time to work out. And you can do that with a coffee and a podcast. There's, there's many pre-workout rituals, but the idea is to find something that you might do for five to 15 minutes with the intention of it building towards movement of some kind. Oh, that's brilliant. That's kind of like mindfulness in a way, isn't it? If you're talking about like um, getting your coffee and getting the natural light. And I actually was going to ask you as well about working out outdoors because Mm. getting the hit of natural light, you like to run. If my spy, (laughs) my sources (laughs) sources are correct. Uh, So, yeah, what's your take on like getting outdoors when we can and moving our bodies that way? It's honestly, it's one of the most therapeutic things you can do. And I, I will say that I'm, I'm a gym lover as well. I mean, I, we have a gym in our basement and we own a facility. And so I, I lift in a gym pretty much every day in mm-hmm. some fashion, but the outdoor time, it goes back to what I said about that dose in the very beginning, right? My, my workouts tend to be more of that, like accomplishment drive, right? They're that sort of dopamine boost, that endorphin boost, you know, sort of what we'll like to, we'll call it the, the E could be endorphins or ego, whichever you want it to be at that point. Right. But that serotonin and that oxytocin, those calming hormones that are in our brain, mm-hmm. those really are most responsive to exercise. Mm-hmm. And I know by exercise, I mean cardiovascular exercise mm-hmm. and things like connecting with nature, right? Things that produce that exhale that I said before. And there's, if you want to compare, one of the easiest things is think about running on a treadmill versus running on a track versus jogging on a flat trail in the woods. And Mm -hmm. the reality is that all three of those are going to provide you with the cardiovascular challenge, but they're very different experiences. Mm -hmm. And the main reason is that sense of connectedness with nature provides an entirely different element um, that in itself is worth absorbing. And so I get Mm -hmm. out, I run more in the you know, I live in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which honestly is has a very similar weather reality to London, um, where <laughs> right. six months of the year it rains and is cloudy. Yeah. And then we get like a six months where we get the occasional like, you know, sunshine and we all like freak out and don't know what to do with ourselves. So yeah, that definitely I, sounds like the UK. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, my wife and I did our honeymoon, actually, and uh, we did London. Oh, and wow. uh, that was our, our time over there. We, we were like, I feel like we're in Pittsburgh. <laughs> like that, was, that was the weather. We, we were like, this, this, this didn't change. This really, we're <laughs> in the same place on the, on the planet. But it's to say that in the, in the warmer months, I, I insert spontaneous running, which is mm-hmm. there will be days that I'm like, oh my gosh, it's gorgeous. Shirt off, out the door, 
nice jog just to like clear my head and get mm. that sunshine and kind of connect, you know, connect with the world as it is. Mm, and vitamin D, right? That's what we get from oh, yeah. the, the natural light. I actually want to talk about good stress and bad stress on the body. And um, we've talked about the stress hormones and this. I'm just going to read this out to you and it's telling you stuff you already know, but you could actually maybe help me navigate through this so the three stress hormones adrenaline cortisol and norepinephrine did i pronounce that well yep you did norepinephrine you said it well um (laughs) so the three major stress hormones do they all play a part on when we move yeah how Mm -hmm. so yeah no that's that's great so those hormones so cortisol is sort of the, the spike, right? So it's the initial one that like waves the flag that says some danger is happening or something, um, something that requires your attention and urgency is happening. And then um, adrenaline and norepinephrine, essentially, they are the things that then like communicate to the body, you've got you've to be prepared for this. And so they're what stimulate the vagus nerve, which is our core nerve to send things to our heart so that our basically our heart rate increases, our blood pressure increases, they send nerve senses to our muscles. So our muscles are a little bit more ready to spasm and, and jump and weave so that we could, we could fight if we needed to fight, we could flee if we needed to flee. So that system is basically the basis of what we'll call our fight or flight response. If anyone's that's listening has ever heard of the fight or flight response. Mm -hmm. And that's what's called your sympathetic nervous system. Mm. And that's that upregulated, that upper kind of thing. That's what causes the heart rate to go over 100 beats per minute. And in short bouts of that, that can be very, very healthy. Extended bouts of that can be extraordinarily exhausting. Mm. Um, And I'll, I'll double back to that. But the first thing I'll note is that it's opposite is the parasympathetic nerve response. And that is the, the exhale response. That's the down regulated. That's the heart rate. You know, so when we think about the average resting heart rates around 70 beats per minute, people that exercise, it can get down into the sixties, fifties, forties. That's a sign of them having an improved parasympathetic nerve response in coordination with their sympathetic. So they physically are more calm. And so that is where cardiovascular and strength-related trainings can improve our parasympathetic nervous system mm-hmm. and it was, as a result lead to what's called vagal tone, which is our vagus nerve, which is that center nerve that tells us whether we're in danger or whether we're safe, mm-hmm. starts to get a lot more safe signaling, which mm-hmm. that's a reduction in anxiety, that's a reduction in stress, mm-hmm. that relieves tension. Um, exercise, it definitely can kind of allow those things to find a better balance. But what's interesting is high intensity exercise causes sympathetic nerve, right? When you do, I don't know, burpees, if you do a hundred burpees, you're going to drive your sympathetic nerve response through the roof. But then afterwards, you're going to get this massive exhale, which is, oh, thank God that's over. Your, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Glad it's over. Exactly. Yeah. But going back to what you mentioned about how you always like, you might not want to do it initially, but you never regret it afterwards. Mm. That's what that is, is sort of, there's this anticipation of forcing a sympathetic nerve response, which is telling your very outdated hormone system that it's in danger. Mm. But on the other side is a signal to your body that you're safe. Mm. And that feeling can last for 24 to 36 hours after a good workout. And so um, exercise at its base is actually challenging our nervous system to basically like focus on being hypersensitive 
and then relieving that tension. And that's where that like exhale kind of feeling comes from. Um, And so where we go wrong is if we overexercise, we can push ourselves too hard Mm -hmm. and that can really start to exhaust our body. And that's what I wanted to bring back on that sympathetic response, right? Is the sympathetic nerve response, the way to think about is if you were in the wilderness and you were getting chased by a, a lion, right? Initially, that tension, that high blood pressure, all those things might help you escape. But if you were being pursued by a lion for six weeks straight, right, (laughs) your body would start to wear out. I mean, all of that overstimulation, hypersensitivity, high anxiety eventually starts to drain you. And that's we're actually seeing that in the modern world and what people are referring to as PPS, post-pandemic syndrome, where for a period of a year and a half, we were in this fight or flight mode where we were like, are we safe? What's going to happen? What's happening next? You know, all of those things going on. And over time that elevated, just, it starts to exhaust itself. And there are corners of medicine that talk about what's called adrenal fatigue, which is those hormones you mentioned. They're Mm. secreted by your adrenal glands. Mm. And those adrenal glands are meant to help you in a short, urgent bout. They Mm. are not meant to support you metabolically and hormonally for months and months on end. So what happens is they start to wear down and that can affect other hormone systems. So you see a lot of people starting, they've been stressed for long times and they say, I'm fatigued and I'm swollen and I'm, you know, I'm sleeping all the time. And that's an, that's a, that's a sign that your adrenal glands have been kind of overworking and your body it's sympathetic, it's up response is actually starting to just like run out of steam. Exercise is a chance to improve that parasympathetic, which is where once again, we can hear in that game of tug of war, it can provide emotional support beyond just the escape. It can actually be basically a, a hormonal interruption. Wow. So much information there. So (laughs) you already answered one of my questions, which was what to look out for if we do. I mean, I do love to move my body and I get really irritated and um, just I feel not good in myself because, you know, working and having quite a static job where, you know, I move my mouth a lot (laughs) for what I do when my fingers (laughs) type in, but I'm not sort of getting out and about and I love to be moving my body. And I think a lot of people that are sort of conscious about moving their body maybe as well don't know when when we cross that threshold into when it's unhealthy and we're moving too much. So, yeah, thank you for giving us some of the signs to look out for. And then going back further to what you were saying, when you were talking about what was going on in terms of like fight and flight and how that can be great in exercise, it was making me think about those that suffer with anxiety disorders, especially if one of those anxiety disorders is uh, panic attacks. Does exercise help you to balance because when you do suffer from anxiety and panic attacks then that um, system is off balance because you're in fight and flight mode where you're actually not in danger at all but it's just you that's that chemical imbalance so from what I was hearing does exercise actually help with that because I also think like maybe sometimes if you're raising your heart rate that might also have the effect where you think your body thinks, oh no, I'm having a panic attack because you've elevated your heart rate. Is it actually more of a help than a hinder? Great question. And the answer is absolutely, it's more of a help. And so one of the things that we would note is if you have someone that's suffering from anxiety and panic disorder, there's definitely a case to introduce low to moderate intensity exercise first. Mm. So walks, jogs, 
things that are more consistent because things like the heart, if you are anxious and you're feeling heart palpitations or your heart rate's elevated and you're lifting weights, you might find that between sets, your heart rate going up and down can feel a little bit anxiety provoking. You might find that when you're getting to that last rep and you're really, really struggling and you're failing, that can actually feel like a lot of pressure. That's that sympathetic, like basically toning is what we'd call it, mm. where the running or the jogging or the walking, things that are a little bit more sustained and moderate, those really drive that parasympathetic a little better. And ideally you'd have both, like we said, that top of the mountain again. Mm. But if I had someone who had anxiety, um, one of the first things I would do is encourage them to have some low to moderate intensity therapeutic movement as a physical outlet, as an exhale, because it allows them what we call a nice, consistent, non-volatile connection to the mind and body, right? It gets them back in touch with one another. Mm. Um, I will openly share, this is obviously a personal share, not a professional share, but mm. I suffer from panic disorder. I have generalized anxiety um, mm. and panic disorder. Now, good news is I've been un non-medicated and well-managed for years. And in my adulthood, utilizing therapy and utilizing resources, I've been able to get to a point where I don't know that I could be diagnosed with those anymore. But from age Wow. 15 to we'll say 25, that decade of my life, um, I had multiple bouts with medications, panic attacks, heart palpitations, and just a constant underlying anxiety. And mm. I always used to jokingly say that I was one run shy of a panic attack. So mm. like I used my running. That's why I was such a runner is that was the place that I like ran out all that extra energy. So all that twisting and nodding and vibrating that was inside of me, mm. a run was the thing that allowed that to get basically like drained out of me so that I could function. And so I use running as my almost exclusive outlet as a young person. And luckily as a young adult and into the adulthood, as I, you know, my master's is in wellness and human performance. And so I have a master's that's exercise physiology and chronic disease management and has a lot of this pathophysiology and behavior, all the, all the fun nerdy stuff that I've been oversharing <laughs> so far in our conversation, right? As I delved into that and started to not just apply it professionally, but personally, I've been able to develop other coping mechanisms. And so my baseline is no longer anxious. Um, but it's to say that I will openly share that running was probably the initial saving grace to help mm. me manage my anxiety or get it to a place that I could then work on it. And a lot of people utilize a medication and work mm. with a therapist, right? Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. there's always that like initial, what we'll call, I always like to call it the help button. Mm. The thing that like you insert that gives you the peace of mind to then take a next bold step forward and work your way. And this is work that, as you know, probably much better than I actually, mm. it takes years. It's, it's, it's a process, mm. um, but exercise is a massive foundation in establishing a less volatile, uh, emotional range, giving yourself a baseline. And that doesn't need to be running for me. Mm. I was a runner in high school. So running was relaxing. And the difference though, is that I could go jog and my heart rate wouldn't go through the roof because I was in shape for it. For some people that don't exercise running would be walking. And so mm. it goes back to, you know, what gets your heart rate to 110 to 130, that like low moderate range, we call it the like the low huff and puff, right? So just a little bit winded, a little bit out of breath, you could still have a conversation. To me, that was a jog. 
to some that would be a, like a walk and to some that might be a walk jog scenario um, mm. to some that might be rucking is really popular i'm not sure if that's a popular in the uk but you wear a weighted backpack that's 25 to 35 i guess it would be 10 to 15 kilograms right. um you, you wear a backpack that's weighted and you hike through the woods with it and so it's like a trekking trailing with resistance so that can elevate the heart rate a little bit gets you with nature and can give you that sort of baseline that who knows what's possible from there mm, and thank you for sharing your own personal story and it's funny just listening to you i was diagnosed with pretty much the exact same condition as well so but for me it's yoga and actually i tried yoga a few times mm. and it didn't work and i don't know if i would just wasn't in the right headspace for it but as a byproduct of the pandemic i thought i'd give it another go and now i practice it almost every day i'm doing my teacher training in a couple of months and like for me that's like been such a game changer in terms of like managing my anxiety it doesn't necessarily elevate the heart rate but in terms of like I don't know, there's just some kind of magic that happens, which I can't really yeah. describe. But yeah, I guess this is why you're case-specific nutrition, because you have to work, everybody's different, so you've got to work with whoever you're presented with and, and sort of go from there. So you do get a lot of people that do suffer from various um, mental health problems that come oh, to yeah. you. And do you also work with them in terms of because you're a registered dietitian and we've talked loads about the the sort of movement side, but then obviously the um, diet side as well is is very, very important. And Dr. Uma Nadu, I interviewed a few months ago, she wrote this incredible book. In the UK, it's called The Food Mood Connection. And in, in the US, it's called This Is Your Brain on Food. And so she very much was talking about there's things that we can eat to help our mood, not just to like nourish our body, but yeah, to, to help with controlling our emotions as well. Yeah, no, that's, um, you know, the mind body or that brain gut connection that they talk about is, is huge. And yes, as a dietitian, you know, food is sort of that baseline, um, you know, the case specific concept, you said, it well, we, our job is to meet people where they are um, and become a guide on their journey. And so we are more of that lifestyle guide. So exercise comes into play, um, you know, so our relationship with sleep and movement and all the habits that kind of make us whole. But at the end of the day, it all is behavioral, right? Exercise, as we talked about, it can be a chore or it can be an escape. It can be an opportunity. Mm. It can be a blessing in disguise. So mm. to speak. Food is the same thing. Food can be a chore um, or food can be a break right? It's meant to be that time we stop in our day and we actually decompress and we become more single-minded and we, you know, stop multitasking on our phones and this and that. And we actually take the time to eat. And when we eat, food hits our tongue and that spikes dopamine in our brain. It lights our brain up like fireworks. It makes us feel really good. Unfortunately, we've especially in the United States, but unfortunately this was a trend I think we're setting that's leaching its way across the globe, is we have a tendency to now passively eat as sort of a behind the scenes fireworks explosion. So there's this eating while we watch television, eating while we're on our phones, mm -hmm. eating while at work, while we're doing emails. So we're kind of like feeding our happiness subconsciously as a back burner and we're not actually actively participating in it so it doesn't actually hold the value it could so with food it really comes back to like your yoga practice which going back to what yoga does well your heart rate goes up a little 
your muscles stretch some, which means there's blood flow, right? Mm -hmm. um, but more importantly, you focus on slowing down, being present, staying in the moment. That single-mindedness is really the most therapeutic benefit. It is the calming. They always say anxiety is a result of living too far in the future. And so if you want to resolve your anxiety, you have to learn mm. to be more in your present. And that's the same thing with food. Food is an opportunity to be present instead of eating as a, I have to eat. So I've got to jam this thing down my throat between meetings. Eating should be a break between those meetings. It should be a chance to go, okay, I just spent that meeting talking about this project. This next meeting, I have to talk about that project. This food meeting, just like I had movement meetings, we have food meetings where the goal is to reconnect with yourself with food. And that should mean that you should, it should taste good. There should be a hunger that's felt. There should be satiety that's felt, right? If we actually slow down and take the time to nourish our body, it becomes an extremely enjoyable experience. And think about most people, if you ask them to recall the best meal they've ever had, mm. they'll, it always ends up being a meal that was like two or three hours long. Mm. And it's because they were truly present, right? They're like, oh, it was great. We had this. And then they brought this out and we enjoyed this. And you notice that the pace of the meal has something to do with the, the, the enjoyment of that meal. And yeah, so yeah. when we work with people in food, that's the kind of stuff that we spend a lot of time doing is reconnecting them, not necessarily with just with what they eat. Obviously, that's a big piece of the puzzle. But the other part is really how they eat. And so we spend a lot of time sort of reconnecting people with the how and then the why why we move, why we care about nutrition, how we move, mm. how we care about nutrition. Mm. I feel like we're just scratching the surface, but I just want to try and squeeze in a couple of quick questions, if that's Absolutely. cool. Absolutely. Thank no you. Problem. Just sort of piggybacking off that, if we could like squeeze in, because you are such a wealth of knowledge on this, what are your own personal favorite superfoods and supplements that you feel help you out in terms of like managing your own, let's say, health overall, physically and mentally? From a supplement perspective, we can start there because those are the easier ones. The main supplements I take are magnesium and vitamin D. Uh, mm. Vitamin D, because I live in a place where you don't get it consistently. We don't get vitamin D from food. We get it from the sun. If you live in a place like Pittsburgh that has 90 out of 360 sunny days a year, yeah. um, you need to supplement your vitamin D. And so I take a mega dose of 5,000 IU of D3 from October to April. And then I drop that down to 2,000 from April to October. Um, if I have a period where I don't get to run outside or there's like prolonged indoorness for whatever reason, I'll bump that dose back up. Mm. So vitamin D is a very big piece for me. I do get my levels tested well enough so that I know kind of where I'm at. So my doses are in some regard associated with my personal levels. Mm -hmm. um, then magnesium. I am, as I've sort of alluded to, activity is a huge part of my life. Personally, it's one of my biggest therapy and outlets and hobbies. Um, in addition to my practice, it's my, you know, my profession. It's also my, my personal hobby. Um, and so mm -hmm. magnesium is a, a mineral in our body that gets very depleted from exercise. And so right. I replenish my magnesium um, utilized in a supplement. There's different yeah. types of magnesium, right? There's magnesium mm. this, magnesium that, magnesium. So which one are we supposed to be like shooting for? That's a great question. <laughs> and so there's there's quite a few. And really the main difference is the absorption of them. That's the biggest thing is how what percent of it actually gets to you. But then the other part, we're starting to see some anecdotal evidence that, um, you know, a magnesium glycinate 
actually tends to replenish the magnesium that's utilized in the brain. Um, I should step back and note that magnesium is unique in that it's um, involved in over 300 different reactions in the body. So it's very important. It does a lot of things. So we're seeing that magnesium oxide tends to have an affinity for the gut. Magnesium glycinate has has an affinity for the brain. Magnesium citrate seems to kind of be an even spread. So I always say a citrate is a great option. Um, and if you really want, though, you can take a, a trimag, which would be one that has a blend of them. And so if you look up a trimag on Amazon or you know other site, you'll find one that has a little bit of each one. That can be a nice way to give yourself a blend just to make sure. Um, but I would encourage you to take somewhere between 200 and 400 milligrams. Mm. Um, and I start with 200. Some people, if they take too much at once, notice they have some bowel-related um, issues as their body acclimates. So start mm. low and titrate up. Do you take it at um, night as well? Magnesium yeah, take it before night. bed. Before Absolutely. Bed, yeah. And you'll notice if you have foot cramps or anything like that while you're sleeping, that's usually magnesium deficiency. Most people notice when they start taking magnesium, they sleep a little better. They get into a deeper sleep that's a more sound sleep. And it's because magnesium helps the myelin sheath, which is the protective coating around our nerves. So it has like a basically a, a, like an anti-inflammatory and like nerve calming effect. So, um, those are the two main supplements I take. I will utilize different things here and there that we don't need to um, Mm -hmm. get into, but I going back to that case specific, when we work with someone, we're always looking at what is their diet? What are they missing? What are, you know, what are they utilizing? You know, again, going back to, are they really active as magnesium, something they're using a lot of. Mm -hmm. Um, So those are all considerations when we, when we meet with patients Um, from a food perspective, when we talk about superfoods, I'm a huge fan of dark greens and dark purples. Those would be the, the ways that I would describe it. So blueberries, um, blackberries, and then our dark greens, like our spinach, our kale, um, you know, our collard greens, our arugula, uh, mixed greens for salads. So anything dark green and dark purple is going to give us a lot of anti-inflammatory benefit. Um, and then from there, the other piece we'd look at is sort of those types of fats. And so we look for our MUFAs, our monounsaturated fatties, and our omega-3s. And so things like avocados and nuts and seeds, um, think fish like, like a salmon, like a, you know, like a wild-caught Atlantic salmon, um, or like a Faroe Island salmon, which in the UK, they don't have to import as far. Um, so you right. know, those types of foods, they're going to be that high quality fat, which the omega-3 and the MUFAs are involved in our anti-inflammatory processes. Um, and then those nuts and seeds and avocados have a whole bunch of micronutrients in them. Mm-hmm. So if we focus on the right quality of fats and then some of those real dark colored produce items, mm. we're going to get a lot of anti-inflammatory benefits. And you'll notice that those things tend to lead to recipes that are slower digesting, right? If you're eating a salad with dark greens and berries and you're having salmon, chances are you're probably eating something along with that that's very slow digesting, very appetite regulating. The meals that we make, they tend to build on each other. Nice. I noticed you didn't mention protein and you have your own blend of whey protein, right? So I do. <laughs> that, yeah. That's interesting. I do. But... It's, yeah. yeah, I do. We have a, we have a daily, it's called daily whey. It's a case specific nutrition daily whey. It's a very simple whey protein blend. I'm a huge protein consumer. I mean, at the end of the day, it's a you know, variety of sources. To me, a protein powder, I like to think of it, I'll, I'll call it this, and some people cringe when I say it, but it's kind of like chicken breast in a blender that tastes like chocolate or vanilla or peanut butter. So protein sources are very important and very valuable. Protein powder is just a convenient, portable, packageable way to 
get some protein. Yeah. Um, the huh? way that we utilize is like a, basically the way it's processed and where it's sourced is of good origin and quality. Mm. It only has three ingredients added to it. So it's a very simple product, but I would never necessarily force or overly encourage someone to have it. Mm. Um, you know, it's something that is a resource there. We yeah. definitely want protein, but protein is interesting in that it's structurally valuable. It's important for recovery. It helps regulate appetite. But when we're talking about inflammatory processes, um, the protein is kind of the brick that repairs things, right? But when we look at what antioxidants and minerals and all those things are, those are kind of like the workers, the laborers that lay the bricks. And most of us don't have a protein issue anymore in our cultures, right? In, the, in sort of the modern world, protein deficiency is pretty rare. Um, when we see some of the developing nations around the world, that becomes a different conversation. Yeah. But for the most part, most of us aren't lacking in protein. We're lacking in the laborers that support that protein synthesis, which would be those antioxidants, those minerals, um, those good quality, slow digesting carbohydrates, those fats that encourage a positive inflammatory response instead of getting swollen and backlogged. So that's why I focus on those things as opposed to the protein. Yeah. We just always want to make sure it's there. Incredible. And just super quick, is it true that the more you work out, the more sleep you need? Yes. In short, yes, <laughs> In that, that's short, definitely yes. true. Um, yeah, the more you work out, the more intensely you work out. Your body needs to repair, right? So exercise is technically tearing the muscles so that they grow back stronger. You're basically saying, hey, I need you to be able to do this. And it's like, but I can't. Okay, I'll learn to do this. And so there's one part tear, one part repair. Repair yeah. is sleeping. And so okay. the more you tear, the more you repair. Got you. Perfect. I just wanted to do the complete 360, eat, sleep, work out, repeat. <laughs> yep. I love it. I'm, I'm in for it. Andrew, you've been absolutely incredible. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate you talking to us today. It's so great to meet you. I'll see you later. Hello, Gabby back with you. I could have easily talked to Andrew all day. Make sure you check out his website, casespecificnutrition.com, because there's loads of good stuff on there. And then if you do want to work with Andrew or any of his team, then you can um, get in touch. And that wraps up another episode of the My Possible Self podcast. I know a lot of you will be listening already on the app, but for our friends who are checking out this episode on one of the major podcast platforms, then the My Possible Self app is still free to download and we're getting such amazing reviews right now. So thank you to anybody that has taken the time to write to us. We read every single one and we appreciate everybody getting in touch. If you don't already follow us on social media, we're at My Possible Self on Instagram and Twitter. And I've been at Radio Gabby. Until the next one, thanks for listening. Take care and bye for now. <laughs>